Hi, everyone, and welcome to uh, Orchards Church's Summer of Wisdom podcast. I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Daniel, and joining me, as always, is the illustrious Rick Vogt, the other pastor of Orchards Church. Yeah, man, this is so good. I'm so grateful to be going through this wisdom literature series. Um, I uh, was just having a conversation with a friend and he was, uh, he's going through a lot of searching right now. And uh, he grew up in a, in a church, in a Christian home, and he's going through a lot of searching in his faith right now. And one of the things that he found really interesting and comforting is the book of Ecclesiastes. And he goes, it's fascinating to me. I'm reading all these Stoic philosophers and all this stuff right now. And then I come to Ecclesiastes and I hardly knew this stuff was in the Bible and I've never heard a sermon on it. I've never heard it in church. And I got to say, well, actually you can, um, because we're doing a summer podcast on the wisdom literature right now. And there's resources all over the place. So that really made me uh, happy that we get to talk about something that's so important and meaningful and ought to be talked about. Um, so, so far uh, we done an intro to wisdom literature. We did two podcasts on Proverbs and we did two podcasts on Ecclesiastes. Um, I don't know about you, Rick, but I've been, I, I can, I keep referencing those in conversations, not the podcasts themselves, but what, what we talked about with people. It just seems like wisdom is just cropping up everywhere right now. Yeah. And so true. I think in general of the, of the scriptures, when we're in them, uh, they feed our mind and our conversation regularly. I, w- I had time to read through these books before we got to them, and now they're just fresh in my mind, and I'm, uh, as you say, referencing their wisdom regularly. So. Oh, it's so good. So um, as we think about these three books of wisdom literature, and we think about them interacting, just as a reminder, we can kind of think about, um, we can kind of think about Proverbs as, the, the book of wisdom literature that kind of has the answers for everything. Uh, almost if, if we were going to think about them as three kids in a classroom, wisdom literature would kind of be like the goody two shoes. The like, I know it all. I, here's what you do. Here are the rules. Follow the rules. It'll work out well for you. And then we get to Ecclesiastes. And this is kind of like the spoiled rich kid <laughs> who's like... It, like I'm trying it all and I'm just too cool for school because I have a pool at home and mom and dad don't care. I don't know. Like, you know, just life is a vapor. I don't quite understand it, but I've also experienced it a lot. So I don't need a lot. It's just an interesting, interesting book. And then we get to Job and I guess to carry on this poor analogy, I've started (laughs) without much forethought, unfortunately, Uh, Job would probably be the kid that, like has followed all the advice of the goody two shoes has done everything right. And yet his life is in shambles and his life has not gone his way. Um, and I think it, it's, it's a really powerful look at what happens when you do everything right and you still suffer. Does that mean that God is unjust? Does that mean that the world is unjust? What, what, what does that mean? And this is kind of like the main question in the book of Job. And I, I, I think uh, over two podcasts, I think we'll grow more wise about what Job has to say, but I'm not sure that Job fully answers that question 
um, as much as I would like to be satisfied in my Western mindset. Um, yes, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it feels like just to kind of wrap up your analogy or to comment on it, um, that there's a tension that's created between Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, this tension of uh, life is fair and things work out well. And if you follow the rules, there's some truth to that for sure. We see it, we experience it, especially when we're younger. But then there's this maturity, this life experience that comes along and says, actually, maybe not. And talks about the unpredictability of life. And then Job seems to be the personification of that tension mm. where those two realities come into play. So, yeah, Job and his friends, they, they are speaking from this huge confidence in the reality that things work this way. It's black and white. You follow the rules. Things work out. Yeah. And Job seems to be struggling with that. And as you said, darn it, it doesn't necessarily resolve, but we get at least a hint at how to hold that tension. Yeah, no, I think it's beautiful. So I think we should probably just dive in. Uh, Rick, do you want to read maybe like, I don't know, Job, like Job, let's just start with Job 1-1 and see where we're at. Job 1-1. Hey, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and start reading to save some time. Okay. Uh, I'm going to be reading from the ESV today. says job 1 1 there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was job and that man was blameless and upright one who feared god and turned away from evil now what's interesting about this verse is we have a lot of information to work with just right away uh the first is uh there's there's this land called Uz, and I don't know about you, Rick, but I, <laughs> this is the only place in the Bible I hear about the land Uz. Um, it's it's one where we think it's somewhere, to, or maybe it's not the only place in the Bible, but it's certainly not like a, you can point to Uz on a map. Uh, we don't know exactly where it is. We also don't have a time frame for this book. There's a lot of books that have um, some sort of historical marker about this took place here. But this book is is absent of historical markers. It doesn't talk about the law. It doesn't talk about the priesthood. Uh, it doesn't uh, mention Jerusalem. It doesn't. It just is absent of a lot of what we would consider normal markers for placing it in history. And so, what this kind of encourages us to do, and I believe this is very intentional by the author's part. I think the the author is now pointing us to the wisdom of the book itself and to not be kind of distracted by these historical questions, but to rather receive the story um, and and to grow and learn from it. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. So right there in verse one, we just have us, this guy called Job. And then apparently he's blameless and upright. He feared God and turned away from evil. I mean, that is really high praise for Job calling him, blameless and upright. And that's from the narrator, right? That's from the author. But then if you go on down to verse eight, then it says, and Yahweh says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So God is agreeing with the narrator. Job here is blameless. What, what, how does that hit you, Rick? Well, the, the reality that God speaks it is 
unbelievable. Like, yeah, I, we, you know, when we talk about righteous, we always know it's always proportionate. Like we would never speak of a complete and a whole righteousness of a person because we know that humanity, that just doesn't happen. But God seems to offer no exception. Just this is the reality. And this is all I have to say about Job. He is righteous. And he even uses the term, you know, fears God, which we have come to understand is the center of wisdom, that wisdom Mm -hmm. is to fear God. So these are the highest words I can imagine God speaking of a human. Yeah, I actually really am grateful you pointed that out, Rick, about him fearing God, meaning he's he's wise. And what he's doing is he's turning away from evil. That's back to the garden language. That's turning away from human's way of doing things, turning away from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and turning towards the, the tree of life. He is he is wise to his core. He's righteous to his core. Um, and then it gives all these um, it. it it gives all these descriptions of Job and what what a great guy he is. Um, but uh, there's a, a fly in the ointment. Is that the right? Is that the right idiom, Rick? A fly in the ointment? You got it. Okay. Uh, there's some gravy in the pudding. Um, <laughs> no, that is not a thing. <laughs> that's not an idiom. I didn't grow up here, so I, sometimes I try to remember American idioms correctly, and sometimes I make up my own. Um, but that's neither here nor uh, Texas. So um, okay, I'll stop. <laughs> I always wondered where there was. They yeah, there's Texas. <laughs> that totally makes sense now that you say it. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's Job is one of the books of the Bible that gives me the most questions. Um, first of all, the, this character just being righteous from the start. That's that's crazy to me. God calls him righteous. The narrator calls him righteous. He must be righteous. Uh, but that, that, that just strikes me as odd from the start. And then if you look at verse six and seven, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord oh, from going to and fro uh, on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Uh, Rick, why don't you explain how that works? Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this reminds me so much of the Melchizedek, you know, references. You're just going along. I'm following the story. This makes sense. I get it. Oh, and by the way, he happened to see Melchizedek and da-da-da. And like, wait a minute, who is this? And there's no answer to those questions. And so, again, you just go, okay. I guess the focus here is on the story and on God and not on the historicity of it all because I don't get it. Yeah, I mean— so he, here is the, yeah, there's so many different perspectives on the book of Job. And I have people that I love and respect that land on lots of different places in the book of Joel, but predominantly they all agree on the main thrust of the book of Joel. Um, and so I think that ought to be our focus as well today, rather than saying, let's try to get down to all the nitty gritty of the details of the options of like, what are all the views about how to read Job one and um, who is Satan and um, yeah, uh, but kind of receive the story and and the story of Job, even the book of Job is kind of, it's set up as of um, with lots of attention to the way the Jews would communicate using literary devices. So the book of Job is a, is a chiasm. 
Um, and a chiasm is, is kind of like a structure you see in a poem where uh, something is mirrored. So like you have a line that says A, then a line of B, then a line of C, and then it'll go B, then back to A. So it'll go A, B, C, B, A is a chiasm. Um, and we see this chiastic structure in the book of Job. We have this prologue um, here at the beginning that goes this chapters one and two, and then we have an epilogue in chapter 42. But then we have these speech cycles uh, that we see um, kind of, this is chapters three through, well, kind of it, it's, it's three through 27. And then there's this kind of hinged section. Uh, there's even the poem about wisdom in, in 28 and then it's fall in Job 28. And then it's followed by these three monologues. Um, and then there's the epilogue. So we've got a prologue, then three speech cycles, a poem about wisdom in the middle, then three monologues, and then an epilogue. And so today we're going to get as far as we can. Uh, we'll probably make it to the poem about wisdom and end it there. And then we'll, so today we'll talk about the prologue, the speech cycles, and then the poem of wisdom. And then next week we'll probably hit the following three monologues in the epilogue. Um, hey Daniel, yeah. can, can you name the characters or the voices to the, the outline you just gave? It's a great outline, but for me, it would help to identify the voices that are speaking each of those parts. Yeah. So, um, and this is great because one of the things that we want to do as we're studying the scriptures is um, just like you would do with any literary analysis, right? Uh, is you look at the venue and you look at the characters and you look at what they say and what goes on, right? Um, and so the characters play a huge part in this. So the main characters in the book right now are um, the, the author, the narrator isn't a character, but is describing a lot of events. Um, and then Yahweh, um, uh, and then, um, Hasatan or the Satan, the accuser is a big character as well. Um, and then we have this guy, Job, um, Job's wife makes a cameo. Um, and I've got a fun factoid about her later. Um, and then, um, we've got Job has three friends that come and sit with him and mourn with him and then kind of say, so what did you do wrong? Why, why did you suffer? Um, let's see here. And their names are, let me pull it up here. Um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, and they speak for a bunch of chapters. And then each time they speak, they say, you must be wrong this way. You must be wrong this way. And then Job kind of responds and says, no, I'm righteous. Actually, no, I'm righteous. Actually, no, I'm righteous to each of them. Um, and then so those, are the, those are the speech cycles then. So the prologue is kind of the narrator and he's setting it up. And then mm -hmm. the speech cycles are between Job and his three friends, a conversation. Correct. Correct. Right. And, okay. and then the monologues come with Elihu, um, who is this younger guy who's been listening to Job and his friends. We aren't introduced to him until chapter 31, but apparently he's been sitting there the whole time because he's been listening and has some pretty strong critiques. Um, and uh, what's really funny about this whole book is that uh, like Job's friends get a bad rap, but boy, they show up and sit with the guy in silence for a week while he's mourning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Like, that's awesome. That's, yep. that's really good friendship. Or even this young guy is listening to the conversation and he lets, he lets these guys talk it out mm -hmm. to share their wisdom. And he finally can't hold it up anymore. He's like, listen, I'm young. Right. But, and so I wanted to listen and learn, but I have some things I need to say. And kind of unleashes it. And then, of course, God shows up 
um, I, I don't want to spoil the book for anybody, but God right, shows right. up and talks to Job and has this <laughs> massive monologue, and then Job responds to it as well. So, so the those three are, monologues belong to Yahweh. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, and and so we we kind of see. Well, actually, I would say, I would say, um, Job gets one. And then Elihu gets a big one, and then Yahweh gets one. It would be okay. the three the three monologues, yeah. Great, great outline. Appreciate it. Yep. And then, of course, is the epilogue in chapter 42, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, next week as well. Um, so kind of if, if there's kind of a, a main thrust of the book, um, it, it's, it's got to be centered around this question. Uh, oh, sorry. If you've never read the book of Job, Rick, do you want to give a, a brief summary of what happens in the first couple chapters yeah sure uh so apparently there's kind of two scenes there's job on earth who is living a very blessed life he's tremendously rich both in relationships in family and in wealth uh he's clearly a very rich man and then the other scene is happening in the presence of God, in the presence of the holy, all the things that he's created, uh, which we get glimpses into now and then. And someone steps forward from among the heavenly beings, the Satan, the accuser, the adversary. And uh, there's this little dialogue you mentioned. And bottom line is um, this adversary, this accuser wants to accuse Job of being righteous only because God has been good to him. Mm. And God wants to, uh, God challenges that because he knows Job through and through. And he wants to say, no, that's not true. Job is actually righteous through and through. So the adversary proposes a challenge, a test to strip Job of all that he has that the adversary believes is motivating him and then see who is he really. What will he yeah. say? What will he do? And so God, and obviously surprisingly to many of us, says, do it. Uh, don't, you can't take his life. And so this happens and these things are stripped away. Mm. No, I think, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really, really good. Um, and so <laughs> there, there, there are some challenges there's some just some strange things before we move on that i want to acknowledge about chapter one and two um first of all the fact that satan and god kind of like make a bet about job like it's there's a wager going on it's very strange behavior for both god and satan um and then also uh the, there's two rounds of the wager they kind of like double down right because Satan comes back and says, um, like, you've you've blessed him, right? You, you've done everything. And, and if you take that all away, then, oh, sorry. So the first thing he says, if you take all away all the blessings and things you've provided, he's going to curse you. And when it doesn't happen, he says, well, that's fine. But if you take away his health, then he'll curse you. Mm -hmm. um, and so what God does is uh, it said, well, actually, hold on. Let me see here. Um. Satan goes out from the presence of the Lord, verse seven of chapter two, and struck Job with a loathsome, loathsome sores from the foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. I mean, this is um, just utter dejection 
it's just he this I mean just this picture of he's lost his uh he he's lost this uh just everything he's lost his home he's lost his family he's lost his kids and even at the end look what his wife says in verse nine then his wife said to him do you still hold fast to your integrity curse god and die Mm -hmm. now what's interesting um this is my little fun factoid about job's wife um is that the hebrew word there being translated curse is the word barak um and do you know how it's most often translated, Rick? I don't. Hmm. Bless. Really? It's yeah, it's bless God and die. But she is so sarcastic that biblical translators don't trust us to understand the sarcasm in her words. And so they translate it as curse God and die for us. Oh wow. But that is one of the deepest moments of sarcasm in the Bible. Incredible. Where she turns to him and says, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Bless God and die. Hmm. Yeah, she is just full of vitriol. Yeah. Because I'm sure her understanding and good standing and relationship with God was based on all all the accusations that the Satan had of Job that are not true of Job would probably be true of her. Hmm. Yeah, you know, it seems to be supportable through the rest of the book when she comments at times that's the reflection as she is in opposition to job and they don't share the same perspective on god and what has happened yeah 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 so uh we 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 see this and one of the questions that kind of popped up in my head is why why boils like why why does satan strike him with boils and it's really interesting if you looked at deuteronomy 28 uh, Deuteronomy is this is this chapter that begins this way. Um, uh, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth and blessings will come. And it's all really good. And then verse 15 says, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do his commandments, his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And one of the curses that's uh, specifically mentioned for disobeying God's law is this, verse 35, Yahweh will strike you on the knees and on the legs with grievous boils of which you cannot be healed from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Wow. Isn't that language familiar? Yeah. Boils from the sole of your foot to the crown of your head. Wow. Being a symbol of, uh, being a symbol of, God's retribution for not obeying his law. Mm -hmm. So Job is sitting there scraping his boils away. I mean, just an awful, uh, awful thing. And this is uh, verse um, 11. Oh, and by the way, uh, I should point out in verse 10, Job responds to his wife and says, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? Job is attributing his suffering to Yahweh Mm, absolutely, and not, um, and not sinning in, in in the midst of it. Hmm. Um, yeah. And he's also attributing them to good and evil as well. Yeah. God being the source of good and evil. Yeah. And I, 
This makes me think of, I mean, we, we as humans still are deeply in this place of assumption. And there's just kind of this default understanding that if life is going well, God is for us or the universe is for us, and it's probably karma because we deserve it. And then when life goes bad, we wonder, what did I do wrong? Is one of the first things we often think of and we often talk about. So we all, I think, have this assumption in our souls that wealth and health are the blessing to the righteous and suffering and pain are the lot given to the unrighteous. Yep. Yep. And that is that is the presupposition that um, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar all hold to, and Job holds to. That is the that is that is the assumption they make. This is how the world works. If you're good, good things happen to you. If you're bad, bad things happen to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is alive and well in the disciples. You remember when they asked Jesus mm-hmm. about the paralytic? Who sinned, right. this man or his parents? Mm-hmm. And Jesus' response is, nobody. Right. That his his affliction is actually a, somehow a part of God's greater plan. Hmm. Yeah. And it's to show his glory. And then Jesus obviously goes over and heals him. Yeah. yeah. Such a good connection. As you say that, I feel like we're going to get to the same place perhaps next week when we wrap up this book. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So these guys show up um, and uh, they have a really good response. Verse 12 of chapter two, when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. They raised their voices and wept and they tore their ropes and sprinkled dust on their heads towards heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. And then Job is the one who kicks off the conversation, and he curses the day of his birth. And then and then the dialogues come. And, and the friends basically are saying, listen, you're saying that God must not be just because you're righteous, but we know God is just, so you must not be righteous. Mm-hmm. And and that's the main argument. And Job just goes over and over and over with them. I am righteous. What gives? I am righteous. What gives? I am righteous. What gives? And they just keep coming up with all of these, um, all all of these thoughts of saying, "Hey, no, you must not be righteous. Hey, no, you must not be righteous. Hey, no, you must not be righteous." Um, but then we kind of get all the way down, and I'm going to skip over. Uh, the chapter 28 wisdom poem briefly mm-hmm. okay. um, to talk about Job 31. And in Job 31, this is kind of like his crescendo. Um, this is his uh, final statement about how righteous he is and that how he does not deserve what has come upon him. And this is Abra- this is Abrahamic levels of righteousness. This is he's right with his community. He's right with his wife. He's right with his kids. He's right with his household. He's right. He, he's walking. Uh, he, like even verse 13, if I have rejected the cause of my manservant and my maidservant when they brought a complaint against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he makes an inquiry, what shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make him and did not one fashion us in the womb? If I have withheld anything that the poor desired or caused the eyes of the widow to fail or eaten my morsel alone and the fatherless not eaten it. I mean, this is a man who is righteous from every different direction in his household, in his community, 
with his God, with the fatherless. He is, he is righteous uh, for uh, in every direction. And he basically turns to God and says, what gives? What gives? Mm-hmm. And then um, this is sneaking into next week. But verse 32 says, so these three men cease to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. Mm-hmm. And then Elihu will show up and we'll talk about him next week. Yeah, um, so they've stretched this tension as tight as you possibly could between mm-hmm. the fairness of life, the predictability of life, and what's actually happening. It couldn't yeah. get any tighter. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I do want to pause, though, and look at this hinge um, of of Job 28. Okay. So uh, Job kind of starts off and uh, talks about... Um, the order, the order of the earth saying, Hey, silver has a mine. And some, by the way, a lot of people attribute this particular poem to Job speaking, but because of the way that chapter 29 is structured and chapter 28 is structured, um, there is another track that thinks this is a, a, a poem thrown in there. And we don't know who says it hmm. because um, my Bible says Job continues, whereas wisdom has a title above it, but that's not in the original text. Right. And very often in the original text, like chapter 9, 29 begins, chapter 29 begins, and Job again took up his discourse and said, mm-hmm. um, or chapter 27 begins, and Job again took up his discourse. But we're missing that in chapter 28. Mm-hmm. So many people think that is just a continuation of chapter 27, that same thought. But um, there is a possibility um, that the author of the book, which we don't know who it is, uh, as as a middle hinge of the book, uh, threw in this poem about wisdom to help remind us this is wisdom literature. Um, And that what we're doing in the midst of this book is we're hunting for God's wisdom. Hmm. Um, And so he says in verse 28 or chapter 28, surely it's a mine for silver. Verse two, iron is taken out of the earth, etc. He's basically talking about the order of things like you, you can go like there's it's like saying there's gas stations for gasoline and there's grocery stores for groceries. And then his his the end of the analogy is verse 12. But where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? You can't go to the wisdom store and pick up some wisdom for your day. Hmm. Man does not know its worth and is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not me, and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold. Silver cannot be weighed at its price. Um, it's almost like he's he's talking. One might say um, that wisdom is almost hebel. It's a vapor that is hard to grasp. Um, not meaningless, but very hard. And then he continues, verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of the living, Right. Then verse 23, God understands the way to it, and he knows its place, for he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. Um, and so, verse 28, and he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Wow, right back where we started with God's description of Job. Yep. And it seems like this both. is setting us up for the conclusion of the book really, really well. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to give you a hint before we get there. Here's kind of where it's going to go. Well, and I think that's why 2828 is so powerful, because 
it says the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Mm-hmm. And that is the conclusion of Proverbs. And that is the conclusion of Ecclesiastes. And here in the midst of Job, we're in the midst of Job, we learn this is also the conclusion of Job, even though we haven't reached the end yet. Thank you all so much for listening. And we hope you can tune in next week to hear uh, the conclusion and part two of the book of Job. Have a good day.